Today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The last time we saw the Apostle Paul speak about his rights or his benefits as an apostle and a minister and then decide not to take them uh, for reasons that we discussed. And it's really um, a continuation, uh, chapter 9 was a continuation of chapter 10, and, or sorry, chapter 8, and we see chapter 10 really tails on to 8 and 9. So everything in this book, we know the chapter delineations came uh, centuries later, uh, but really this was to be read 1 Corinthians as a letter in the church that Paul wrote as a, a continued flow. Today we're going to see more on the subject of Christian liberty, but really how it could hurt ourselves if we take liberty to an extreme in addition to hurting others. Um, The children of Israel have been used as an example, uh, and it was uh, definitely spoken for the Corinthians, and we can see believers today that fall into the trap of just kind of being in a denomination or being in the faith or it's a cultural thing or that's how my parents grew up but simultaneously trying to feed the flesh and really a double-mindedness. But we're going to cover all that today. So if you would, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 10, starting with chapter or verse 1. He says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. And this is, if you're not terribly familiar with the scripture, you've heard, I'm I'm sure, of the children of Israel being in Egypt, and the whole thing with Pharaoh persecuting them, and, you know, God calling Moses and Aaron to deliver them, let my people go, right? Eventually, uh, Moses leads the children of Israel out of Egypt and thus starts the Exodus. And one of the books in the law, in the first five books of the Bible, uh, is called the Exodus. But what we see is that all the children of Israel received the same spiritual benefits, but not all of them were saved. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 9, 6, all of Israel were not of Israel. Let's try to figure this out. Look at the benefits that the children of Israel received. Number one, all the children of Israel passed under the cloud. Now, when God guided the children of Israel through the wilderness, he did it in two ways. He did it as a pillar of a cloud by day, and whenever the cloud moved, the, the camp would pack up and start following the Lord, and at night it was a pillar of fire, so he could be easily seen by the children of Israel. This is uh, spoken about in Exodus 21. So the first benefit that the children of Israel received was God's presence and God's guidance personally. Very impressive. What a time to be in the children of Israel when God was personally there for you and, and leading you. Two, all passed through the Red Sea. And you've heard the story. Again, if you're not familiar with the Bible, you've seen the movies, right, with Charlton Heston. You know, the Red Sea opens up, the children of Israel pass through it, and then when the Egyptians come, the sea closes on them and kills the Egyptian army. But they all pass through the Red Sea. Second benefit, God's protection. And we see in the scripture that this was a type of baptism to come, and that's explained more in the New Testament. Now, at this point, because there's um, something in scripture called typology, like an archetype or a prototype. So I have to help you to understand what typology is before we continue. 
typology in the scripture, number one, is a pattern that's repeated. Number two, it's a foreshadowing of a person or event. Number three, often the Old Testament initial pattern, okay, is explained in greater detail in the New Testament. And oftentimes, the, um, the, la the latter part is a perfection of what you see in the Old Testament. So there you have your types. Three, all ate the same spiritual food. The third benefit to the children of Israel that all of them received was God's provision. Manna rained from heaven. As a matter of fact, the word manna literally means what is it? You know, God just rained it down and they would collect it and they would eat it and it supplied their nutritional needs perfectly. So you have the, the manna. And four, all drank the spiritual drink. Well, the rock in the wilderness, Exodus 17, right? Now, it says that Christ was that rock. In the New Testament, Jesus says in the, in the Gospel of John, if any man thirsts, let him come to me. And he'll be satisfied. You know, rivers of living waters will flow out of his heart, indicative of the Holy Spirit. But really, if any man thirsts, you know, I'm up here a lot with my water because I get thirsty after I talk too much. And we have to constantly drink, right? You can't go without water or hydration for a long time. But Jesus was speaking about not only the water that you drink and you have to keep drinking, he's speaking about spiritual things. He's saying if any man or woman thirst for the things of God, they will be filled. They will be spiritually quenched. So you see Jesus really as the, the rock and also the water that came out to sustain the children of Israel. Now you would think if you didn't know the end of the story, that all the children of Israel would be stellar, obedient believers, right? Wrong. <laughs> Their bodies were scattered. Now, in the Greek, the word is uh, more powerful. The word for scattered is katastronomi, where in the English we get catastrophe. And it was a catastrophe, right? God's judgments, his plagues, his disasters were there to stop the cancerous sin and rebellion that was making its way through the camp. So he had to scatter their bodies in the wilderness. Coupled with unbelief, this, was, this caused the majority of them not to enter the promised land. It was only their grown-up children with the leadership of Joshua and Caleb that could actually get into the promised land. So in context, how does that apply to the Corinthian church? More importantly for us is, what about believers in America? Well, I would just say that not everyone who calls themselves Christians are the Lord's. That's a little shocking to some, and we're going to see this is a very sobering portion of Scripture. Matthew chapter 7, three verses. Jesus says this in verse 21. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And the scripture is clear. We went through the book of Revelation, wild book, wild imagery. In the book of Revelation, you know, God eventually, the Lord comes back for his people. You know, we, we get raptured, we go up to, to meet him in the air, and there's some great events that he has lined up for us. But there will still be a, quote, Christian church on the earth. It will be populous. It may be in the millions all around the globe. It'll be a Christian church without Christ, a Christless Christian church. And folks, 
This kills the idea of, well, if I get to heaven, I take out my card, wait, my gym membership card, no, my credit card, my driver's license, here it is. Hey, Lord, I'm a Protestant. Can I get in the pearly gates? Or here, Lord, I'm a Catholic. Or here, I went to Calvary Chapel. But they all say the Calvary Chapel is the best place to go. Can I come in now? No. No. It isn't how we grew up. It isn't the culture we're a part of. It isn't just because we go to a church. The only way is through a relationship with Jesus Christ. As my son grows up, he can't piggyback off of my faith. He has to have his own faith and his own growth with the Lord Jesus Christ. But again, this is going to be a very sobering portion of Scripture for many of us. But the good news is, if you know Jesus and you've trusted him, right, you're, you're, you're in good hands. And if we fall back into some of the things that the Scripture talks about today, God always allows U-turns, as the bumper sticker says. God allows U-turns. God always allows repentance and restoration for those who are in the faith. And for those who are also outside of the faith, the bottom line is he, he allows for repentance, a change of heart, a change of mind to turn towards him and to trust him as, his, as our Lord and Savior. Verse 6. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, as in Exodus 32. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell, or they died. For Corinth and all believers, the Bible warns us not to lust after evil things. And let the Old, Old Testament and this particular scripture be an example. That's why God put it in his sacred word for us, right? Heed the warnings. Back then, they had the great miracles of God. And they had great signs of judgment before their very eyes. But today, in addition, we have recorded history, which they didn't. We got to see their failures. We got to see their repentance. They didn't get that re recorded history. It's for our benefit, the Bible says. We also, as believers, are sealed with the Holy Spirit. So we have two things that they didn't have. So for us, there's really no excuse. Verse 7 in Exodus 32. The three things that went together were drugs, alcohol idolatry, and sexual immorality. And if you got one or two out of three, it would help to dull your senses so you could get the third one. But it's no different today. It's all designed to pull us away from God, right? In our society, what's changed? Drugs, alcohol, sexual immorality, and idolatry. Oh, we don't worship little statues anymore, but we can worship other things like our jobs, our children, our home, our cars, same idols, just a different type of idol, right? It's all there. In verse 6, believers in the Corinth and believers today need to heed the warning of not falling into the same type of destruction. And again, this was written to a New Testament church, so you better believe that it applies to us. And the question is, what are we planning? You know, what's, what's on our agenda? What are we doing that we think is done in secret? When it comes to God, is there such a thing as secret? Bible says it's better to repent now before the Lord has to deal with us. Maybe some of you today are on the wrong path. Maybe some of you today are going in a direction that you know the Lord doesn't want you to go in. And he's speaking to you through this message. But again, I have to stress, I have to stress the good news. The good news is God allows for repentance. It's just a change of heart. It's just a, um, 
an expression of your will away, seriously. Verse 9, nor let us tempt or test Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. This word in the Greek can mean to tempt or to test. It's depending on the context. And, you know, this this is the idea for us today. I want to be a Christian or I want to be in the faith and I want everything that the Lord has to offer. Salvation, I'll take it. Anything good that God has to offer, yeah, sure, add that to my cart. But then there's sin, right? And sin and destruction is very enticing. It's like a fire. It's mesmerizing. It's interesting. And it's a picture of those who, you know, keep trying to get as kind of close to the fire as they can without getting burned. And they keep playing with the fire. Eventually what it does is it dulls your senses and you get yourself into the fire, which is not a good thing. Watch for the burn. The desire of a believer is to have a deeper walk with the Lord, not barely a walk at all. Yes, we sin. For those of you who are not familiar with the Bible, you say, and listen, when I was young, I didn't want to go to church. I thought, and there's only a bunch of really perfect people there, and I can't live up to the standards of of the Bible. Hey, you're in the best position to receive the Lord as your Savior, right? We do, even as believers, continue to sin, but the difference is we feel bad about it. And we ask the Lord to perfect us and mature us. So as we grow in our Christian walk over the years, we can look back and say, hey, I'm not the same person I was five years ago. Yes, we do take three steps backwards at times. But you know what? We just keep using, like the the pillar of the cloud and, and the fire, wherever that went, wherever the Lord went, the people would respond and follow. And that's what we need to be doing. Verse 10. Nor murmur as some of them also murmured and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition or instruction or warning on whom the ends of the ages have come. Murmuring, complaining, grumbling. The Greek word is actually kind of funny. It's gongudzo. And it's a anomatopoetic word, which means that the word reflects the sound that it makes of, of what the person is doing. In other words, you know, complaining, murmuring, grumbling, gongudzo, gongudzo. And the children of Israel did this. They walked through the desert. It's hot in this desert. Why do we have to leave Egypt? There were onions. There were a variety of foods. You know, I'm thirsty. I'm hungry, enough of this manna, I want some meat, gongudzo. And that's what they would do. They would just complain about God. They were murmuring about God. And you might say, well, what's the big deal? Well, this is very destructive. And it also spreads like a contagion. It spread among others in the camp. And it was an insult to God. You know, the Lord allows us to go through hard things in life so he can grow us. Romans 5 and other scriptures are clear about that. But they just wanted to be taken care of. What they did forget was when they were Egypt, little, little point that they missed, they were slaves, <laughs> right? They thought of the onions and the leeks and the garlic and the chickens and whatever the Egypt's, Egyptians had there, but they probably got the table scraps because they were slaves, right? They forgot that part. You know, Some have nothing better to to do than just complain about everything. They complain about what God hasn't done for them. They complain about their kids. They complain about their spouse. They complain about their boss. They complain about their neighbors. But you know what? We expect that in the world. But we really don't expect that in the body of Christ. Because if we're that miserable, 
then we've missed what it means to have the joy of the Lord. Then we need to get in our prayer closet and say, Lord, what am I doing wrong? What am I missing? Where did I leave you behind? Because I don't want to be like that. I want the joy of the Lord. And it's available to all of us. Verse 12, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Don't be overconfident. Don't be a braggart. Those are the ones who usually fall. Proverbs 16:18 says, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. When we see another fall into sin, fewer reactions that we shouldn't have. Oh, you know, to mock that person or to have the attitude, hey, that can't happen to me. You know, I see, unfortunately, I believe that, you know, it's intense what's going on in the world. The spiritual battle is at full pitch. You can see the things that are happening. There are those that are very, very good missionaries going and giving the gospel to uh, peoples that are hostile toward it. And then you also see the culture war that's raging and the, the things that God says are wrong that people are saying now are right. So you see this, there's really a spiritual battle going on. But the bottom line is this. The bottom line is that I lost my place. Okay, I got it. The bottom line is when I see people fall into sin, especially pastors, my attitude isn't, oh, I can't believe they did that. My attitude is, Lord, guard my heart. God, please don't let that happen to me. You know, it should be a humble attitude to ask the Lord, why do you think we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil? There's a purpose for that. That should be on our hearts all the time. Help me, Lord, not to fall into that same trap. So we can see that. However, the children of Israel were an example of overconfidence because of privileges. And you know what? Unfortunately, in the Christian church today, we also see that. We are privileged. We have so much. There are people in China, the underground church, that share a page, memorize it, and give it to the next person in the village or copy it down. If you go to my house, I got like 10 different Bibles. I got a commentary, I got a Greek Bible, I got this standard and that standard. And, you know, I got so many Bibles, I don't know what to do with them. But because we live in America, there's freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, right? In other countries, they don't have that. So it's, it's pretty tough. But the children of Israel, as some American Christians, have an overconfidence because of their privilege. And if we fall, the Bible says it could have been prevented. No matter what sin we're tempted with, the Bible says it's like the HOV lane when you're on the highway. It's always there. You could always get into that lane. No matter which way the highway goes, that lane is there, right? It's the way of escape. No matter what temptation you fall into, the way of escape is always there. And if we're honest with ourselves, and I'm honest with myself, I could look back on any sin that I was tempted and fell into. And I look back, it wasn't so overbearing that I couldn't, you know, I I couldn't resist it. I I made that choice to fall into the sin. The Bible says that all these temptations that we run into, they're common to man. Satan's not going to spring one on you that's so overwhelming that you can't resist it. There's always a way of escape, and that's important. Nobody makes us do anything. When we sin, it's voluntary. So what do we see here? Children of Israel, Paul speaking to the Corinthians, what about us? The message is this. Be careful. Not to fall into the old ways, the old life, the old man. 
Part of when we become baptized is we go into the water, and it represents a lot of things. But one of the things is when we come out of the water, we leave the old life behind, and we come out of the water in newness of life. We want to be spiritual people now. We want to kind of leave the natural man behind. It's always there, but our striving and our desire is for spiritual things. Number one, the children of Israel were delivered from Egypt. Egypt signified the old sinful life, if we look at typology again. And Moses taking the children of Israel out of Egypt was of a type of delivery, right, from sin. In the New Testament, we see that Jesus delivers us from sin, right? Moses was a type of the Messiah to come. In other words, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He shed his blood for the remission of our sins. I've said before, and it's been used many times, it wasn't the nails that held them onto that cross. It was his love for us knowing the joy that was set before him, knowing that we would have reconciliation with God and we could live eternally with him. The Bible is very clear, 1 John 5, right? He who has the Son has eternal life. Unfortunately, though, he who does not have the Son does not have eternal life. However, anyone can turn at any time, repent, and trust Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and they're promised eternal life. I mean, that's all I have to do? It's all you have to do. Trust Jesus, right? Move in that direction. Two, the children of Israel were personally cared for in the wilderness by God. Privilege. In the New Testament, right, the Holy Spirit, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit as believers. The Holy Spirit convicts us and convinces us when we're wrong. The Holy Spirit teaches us. The Holy Spirit guides us. The Holy Spirit empowers us. So we also have that privilege. Unfortunately, though, many of the children of Israel complained and lusted after Egypt. They lusted after the old life. They lusted after the slavery conditions, right? And that's a picture of, of a believer's pride, arrogance, unthankfulness, privileged and entitled mentality. Looking back, and why would you look back, right? Jesus says, the one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not worthy of me. Keep going, right? Keep looking towards the prize. The Corinthians had a reminder of the old sinful life all around Corinth, and it was the uh, warning was, be careful not to dabble too far into your Christian liberty, right? If you take liberty or freedom, and, and the Apostle Paul speaks about this, as Christ, uh, as, as believers in Christ, we are free from our sins. We, the sins have been paid for. So some have the attitude, and some did have the attitude, it was heretical, that, well, gee, since Jesus paid for every one of my sins and the ones I'm going to commit, I could do whatever I want because they're paid for. Wrong attitude. Completely wrong attitude, and the Apostle Paul speaks about that in Romans 5 and 6. If you take personal freedom to an extreme, it leads to slavery of my lusts and desires. Hey, I'm free. I could do whatever, whatever I want. So every whim and every, every desire that's in me or that forms uh, or comes to a head, I follow that. Now I'm putting myself back into that bondage. Do you see? It's just simple logic. Brothers and sisters, are we immune from dabbling where we shouldn't? Are we immune? I'm not immune. Lord, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. Sometimes it's a phone call away. Finding an old dusty phone book, blowing it off, looking in there. Oh, I wonder how Lisa's doing. Oh, I wonder how Bob's doing. Boom, brings us back to 15, 20 years, right? Could be a thought, a split second, a decision away. We're presented with a temptation, and it's a big one. And all of a sudden, we decide we're not listening to the Holy Spirit. We're going right back into that temptation. Or it could be a social gathering. The old neighborhood, my old stomping grounds, 
wonder how the boys are doing back there, you know? I think I'm going to go. When dealing with addicts, what do we do? We try to remove the person from people, places, and things, right? We try to move, remove that temptation, which causes them to stumble. And you know, there is a movement now to reach the youth. And this movement, we see more and more of it, is 40 and 50-year-old pastors want to be hip and cool. And they talk the language of the younger people. And they start acting like the younger people, right? It's embarrassing. Because you know what? When I was a 20-year-old and I looked at the 40 and 50-year-old, I didn't want him to act like me. I wanted some stability when I looked forward. When I got to be your age, I looked at the, the older Christian men, even though I wasn't ready yet, these guys had their act together. They had a stable life at 40 and 50. And I'm thinking, gee, if I get that far, I want to be like him. But there's a movement to fall back, and it's foolish. It's considered the cutting edge, but it's more of a compromise, right? G. Campbell Morgan said this, the church is never more powerful when it looks nothing like the world. It's bad when the world practices evil, but it's infinitely worse when the church is doing the same thing and there's no difference. So, so far we've heard this. I'll just sum it up. Number one, don't be unaware. Number two, God wasn't pleased with his people. Number three, God destroyed and judged some of the children of Israel. We saw that four times. And number four, this is written as a warning to us. We saw that two times. What do you think the Apostle Paul is trying to say to us? Well, let's see. What about the New Testament? Let's see. Um, Ananias and Sapphira, right? In the book of Acts, they were struck down by God for lying to the Holy Spirit. They were, there were some that were killed or struck down in the New Testament in the church of Corinth, Corinth for defiling the Lord's Supper. Now, sometimes we have this twisted idea that, well, you know, God's aged since then, since the Old Testament. You know, he's grown some more hairs on his beard. He's getting grayer. He, he's getting soft in his old age. And he doesn't look at sin the way he used to look at it. Don't make that mistake. That's not true about him. The Bible says that God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, some will look at this and, you know, again, come up with these ideas and rely on them. Um, you look at five-point Calvinism, the P in tulip, the last point is perseverance of the saints, once saved, always saved. And sometimes the attitude is, hey, well, I'm one of the elect. I could do whatever I want, like I said before, and I'm still going to heaven because I'm one of the elect. It's a dangerous doctrine. It gives a false sense of security and a false sense of um, salvation. Now, then you may say, well, what are you trying to say, Pastor Joe? Well, I'm not trying to say anything. I'm trying to say that when we see something in the Bible as men, we like to philosophize and chew it around and put some doctrines in a corner and, and parse it and say everything's going to be okay. How about as people, we just listen to what God says? It's very simple. I'm not going to talk about salvation and gaining it and losing it and all that stuff. I'm going to say this. God says don't do it. So we shouldn't do it. Not argue about it, not theologize about it. Just don't do it. It's very simple. And see, that's why the Bible says um, it's the one who becomes like a child gets into the kingdom of heaven. They understand simple things. As adults, we try to get around what God says through loopholes, right? Christians shouldn't compromise. We shouldn't be into everything the world is into. This is meant as a warning. The appropriate response is, yes, Lord, I will. Help me. Verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. 
The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, being many, are one bread and one body. For we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything? But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? How appropriate, because today we're going to be celebrating communion, the Lord's Supper, right? Number one, the cup of blessing, the communion or the koinonia or the fellowship of the blood of Christ. The Lord blessed us with salvation and we bless him, okay? Two, the bread we break is the communion of the body of Christ, right? Jesus says, this is my body which is broken for you. The fellowship as believers as one body and with our Lord as we partake, okay? And in other words, when we take of communion, it's not an individual thing. Partly, yes, with our soul, our spirit, with the Lord. We remember his sacrifice. We partake of the bread and the cup. But if you notice, and especially here, we hand out the trays, you look at each other. We are partaking with each other. We as a unit, as the body of Christ, partake. And with other fellowships that even may be on the other side of the world, right? We all are one body and we work together. And we're going to see that in 1 Corinthians 12. But he says, even Israel partook of really their communion during their sacrificial offerings, where they would offer the animal and they would, part of it would be offered to the Lord. Other part of it they would consume and the priest would consume, right? They would partake of. So we see that. And that was a type of the Lord's Supper to come, right? The Old Testament sacrifices. Now, continuing the thought in Corinth, because the Gentiles' gods, let's just say, you know, the uh, Zeus and Apollo and all these different gods don't exist, Paul is saying that the gods they're technically sacrificing to are demons, okay? There's only one God. Now, I want to back up for a minute. So just tying 8, 9, and 10 all together, the first principle that the Apostle Paul tried to show us way back was we have freedom in Christ, but we, we relinquish or we abrogate that freedom uh, for a weaker brother. In other words, we don't take of that benefit if another brother or sister could be stumbled. That's the first principle. Uh, the second principle is be careful of your freedom that not only does it not hurt someone else, but that you don't hurt yourself with it. Unrestrained freedom, libertinism, antinomianism, be careful of that. So you can hurt yourself too, right? Freedom to the extreme, right? If you look at relativism, it's anarchy and lawlessness. In other words, if everything is uh, relative and I have my standards and somebody who's living a more lascivious life has their standards, right? In America, we just abolish all the laws because what I think is okay to do, you may not think. But something you think is okay to do, I may not think. So basically, the extreme freedom to the extreme is relativism. All right? It's basically what's, what's my judgment. So you can't make any laws because you'll infringe on somebody's rights. Anarchy and lawlessness. So even freedom has to be balanced with responsibility. In other words, I have the freedom of free speech. But if I go into a crowded movie theater and scream fire and there's no fire and people are running and somebody gets hurt, well, that's freedom taken to the extreme. I don't have the right to hurt someone else. 
There's plenty of examples of that. Also, we don't have freedom to provoke, like the Bible says, or dare God. Right? You had the Corinthians who would take of the Lord's Supper and then maybe right after that hang out in an idol's temple and partake of what was going on there, knowing full well what they were doing, the sacrifices. Right? See, adults can be immature. We can tend to do evil and then dare someone to mete out the consequences, but it's dangerous when we do that to God. Verse 14, he says, flee idolatry. The Lord is jealous for our affection and our attention. He's jealous for our worship, and he won't share or compete with another affection. That's important to notice. Back then, they worshiped idols, statues, false gods, demons by default. But today, if, you, if I ask you a question, what comes to your mind? Something you're completely obsessed about. Something or someone. Day and night, you think about this thing or this person. You spend the most time with this thing or this person. I'm not saying it is an idol, but I'm saying it could become an idol, right? We end up elevating it higher than God himself, and God won't compete. That's idolatry. That's idolatry. So, there was a song um, that goes, it's all about you, Jesus, and I won't sing it for, for you know. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> but the words go, part of the words go, I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it because it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. And what is that thing? It could be anything in our life that all of a sudden, you know, gets in front of God. To me, I look at the relationship with God, and that's a, um, a perfect relationship, right, when it's perfect in the future. But you look at other relationships in our lives. It's like same thing. You know, you, you get saved, and you're in love with the Lord, and you just can't wait to read his Bible and go to Bible study. And then a few years go by, and this happens with some. It kind of wanes. It becomes like any other relationship. It becomes, and then something new comes along, and then you kind of put that in front of your relationship with the Lord. That's one relationship that we should never let get dull. And if it gets dull, it's our fault. It's not God's fault, right? So watch out for that idolatry. Verse 23, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but all things do not edify let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord and all of its fullness. And that's in Psalm 24. If any of those who do not believe invite you to dinner and you desire to go, eat what is, whatever is set before you, asking no questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it. For the sake of the one who told you, and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of the Lord, of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. The goal in everything that we do is to glorify God. The Apostle Paul says all things are lawful. And in chapter 6 we discussed this. That was a, a catchphrase among, the, I guess, the believers back then. Hey, I'm free in Christ. All things are lawful. Don't judge me. Don't tell me I'm wrong. All things are lawful for me. But all things are not helpful. All things don't build up. All things are not profitable to me personally or to others. And you see both of those principles come together. 
Verse 24 says, seek another's well-being. John 13 says, Jesus says, they will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, right? Think of others instead of just ourselves. Now, just go through this briefly. Um, in, the, in the former chapters, it talked about, I guess, going to the marketplace and buying meat. And uh, it could have been sacrificed to an idol. It might not have been. And basically what he's saying is even if you go to somebody's house for dinner, and this was the thing back then. I know it's hard for us to identify, but if you were in Corinth, there were pagan t- uh, temples everywhere. Most likely if you ate at somebody's house, somewhere along the line, somebody took that animal and sacrificed it to a false god and then slaughtered it. And it ends up in the market, and now it's roast beef, and you're eating it with the person who's invited you to their house. But he says, don't ask any questions because the earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness. It's the meat's not going to hurt you, right? You know, God is all powerful. The meat came from the animal that God caused to live. The earth is the Lord and all of its fullness. But for conscience sake, don't ask any question. Just enjoy the food, right? But if you're eating dinner and somebody has the great idea to say, hey, where did this meat come from? (laughs) You got a full mouth of, you know, roast beef and you're chewing and, oh, you had to ask that question. This is so good. And then somebody says, oh, we offered it. It was offered to Apollo. Why? You know, the guy spits it out, right? He says, don't eat it. Why? For conscience sake. You're going to hurt that person's conscience, right? And we covered that in the last few chapters. So the question in verse 29 is, why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? I'm not doing anything wrong. And that's true. The answer in verse 31 is we do everything for the glory of God, which is the third principle. Number one, don't stumble others. Number two, don't stumble yourself. And number three, everything we do is for the glory of God. And that's the overriding principle, not only to the first two principles, but to everything we do in our lives. I mean, what benefit would it be for a pastor, right, who could possibly stumble those who are weaker in the faith to round them up and say, hey, we're going to party at your house tonight. I'm going to bring the booze, and we're going to see just how far we can go without breaking any of God's laws. Now, technically, you're not breaking any of God's laws. But what is the edifying value of doing that? You could hurt somebody's conscience doing that. Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary, said this. If we live by biblical principles, we never have to worry about breaking any of God's laws. That's a good point. Live by principles. You don't have to worry about breaking God's laws. So in closing, two things. Number one, the second principle regarding liberty. How does it hurt me personally as opposed to how does it hurt others? falling back and you know what we should ask ourselves this question do i think that i'm just fine do i think that i'm impervious to sin do i think that when i see others fall hey that can't happen to me be careful bible says you're in a dangerous place do we need to change some of our own personal habits and pursuits in our lives the bible says if you think you stand take heed lest you fall it's a good principle to follow How appropriate might this be to some of us today in our own personal lives? Hey, I'm cool. All things are lawful. Don't point out anything in my life. I'm going to put up my force field. You can't get in, right? Second point, third principle, glorifying God. For what? To help to lead souls to salvation and further God's kingdom. And the question is, does my life reflect that principle as a whole? When I look at my life, And if I wasn't me and I could step out of me and look at me and my life, does my life reflect that principle? Is what I do in general glorifying to God? Or is it just glorifying me, right? It's hard, that one. 
living in the me generation. Every time I get up in the morning and go into the bathroom and look in the mirror, I see me. I don't see any of you. I see me. That would be weird if I saw one of you. I see me. So I see me all the time. I tend to be me-centered, right? Because we see me all the time. We like me, right? I may not have any overt or wanton sin in my life, but sometimes it's all about me and my circle, and I'm not seeing that. Is it all about me, my kids, my time, my money, my pursuits, my little group, and I don't care about anything else? Folks, I just pray today that we would look at these principles and see how we can apply them to our lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you again for your word, as always. Whenever we go through.